what is starting to emerge is Web 3.0. And 3.0 is the next generation of the internet. It's really, really early days. And the computer science that Web 3.0 is built on is blockchain and it's blockchain networks. There's a difference between free markets and free for all markets, <laughs> as, as we used to say at the New York Stock Exchange, and it is true. That is why I actually am encouraging industry leaders to spend time and educate themselves on it, because it will it will grow with Gen Z, right? And they're graduating college, and here they come. From PwC's management publication, Strategy and Business, this is Take On Tomorrow, the podcast that brings together experts from around the globe to figure out what business could and should be doing to tackle some of the biggest issues facing the world. I'm Aisha Hazarika, a broadcaster and former senior political advisor in London. And I'm Lizzie O'Leary, a podcaster and journalist in New York. We are living through a revolution in the way people think about money. At the center of that revolution are digital currencies. But what you think you know, the names of some of these famous assets like Bitcoin or whatever, that's not exactly what people in the industry think about. They're thinking about how the infrastructure of all of this is going to change how money flows. So today on the show, we're going to start with a wee crash course. Call it Blockchain Technology 101, the future of money and what it means for you. That's coming up on Take On Tomorrow. Oh, and by the way, Take On Tomorrow is a place for us to discuss the future. It is definitely not financial or legal advice. Or tax advice. None of that. In just a bit, we'll be joined by Sheila Baer. Sheila was at the highest levels of the U.S. government during the 2008 financial crisis. She led the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, the FDIC, which is the government agency that insures Americans' bank deposits. Today, she not only sits on the board of Paxos, a major blockchain technology company, but she's also the author of children's books about responsible money management. We are going to talk to her about what regulating this digital Wild West could look like. But first, we are joined by Vicki Huff-Eckert. Hello, Vicki. Hello, ladies. Hello. It's great to be here today. Now, Vicky, you're recently retired from PwC US, where you were vice chairwoman responsible for services to the technology, media and telecommunications sector. Obviously, this stuff, crypto, blockchain, NFTs can be very confusing and indeed a bit overwhelming for people. So given your expertise, we thought we'd start off with some basics. Let's start with the simplest of terms. What is blockchain? Blockchain is a technology that's decentralized, and what it does is it does record-keeping over a number of computers across a network that's on a chain. So think of it as one transaction being recorded many times, and it results in an immutable copy that is the concept of the decentralized computing. Why is blockchain important? Why are we all talking about blockchain? How is it going to impact business and society? Yeah, blockchain is really important because it is the network that underlies Web 3.0. So when you think about the first generation of the Internet, you think of Internet Explorer. And if you happen to be my age, you think of Windows 95 and when it first came out and Netscape and what have you. And then you had the evolution with the birth of the iPhone into 2.0 and applications such as you know, Meta and Google and Apple. And what is starting to emerge is Web 3.0. And 3.0 is the next generation of the internet. It's really, really early days. 
And the computer science that Web 3.0 is built on is blockchain and it's blockchain networks. And so in terms of looking at those shifts, what are the things, Vicky, we should be looking out for? And where does cryptocurrency fit into all of this? So if you look at the shifts that are going to come with 3.0, what is important is it is introducing the concept of ownership and moving data ownership from being in the network to the human. And so Vicky, who are the types of people who are doing this, who are buying cryptocurrency and using it right now? And is it expensive? Right. Well, it's not cheap. But when you look at um, who's buying it, because you can buy it fractionally, so you don't have to buy one Bitcoin or one ETH, because they actually are quite expensive. But who is buying it? You have the, the trends are being led by what I kind of consider two ends of the spectrum. You have kids and Gen Z um, folks buying it throughout the world. Uh, this is a generation that has stayed home now from school for the last two plus years. And they are really proliferating this space through gaming and being able to buy their merch on their games. And they use Bitcoin and other cryptos to do that. Um, On the other end, you have very high net worth individuals that are starting to see the ability to invest. And it's to be very clear for the listeners, it is very speculative, but they are investing in these technologies and they're buying on the other end to make their investments. Because as I mentioned before, everything you do within blockchain networks, the payment is through cryptocurrencies. So Vicky, you're absolutely clear that this shift is happening. This shift is coming. Yeah, I am. I think that's a great question because I think that there are a lot of folks, we all have gone through it, wondering when this will pass. Um, Is it really here to stay? Not wanting to actually take the time and learn all of these new terms because they were hoping that it would just go away and you can move on. But the reality is these markets are very large. They fluctuate a lot. But it is at a point where it's pretty clear it's here to stay. And I think what's most important is it really is coded into these future protocols for the internet. And so it's coming at us and something we all need to now start really taking the time to learn about. Lizzie, to start learning, you called Sheila Baer, former bank regulator and board member of a blockchain startup. What did you find out? was really interesting to me because she comes at this from so many different angles. But right now, she sits on the board of a blockchain company that is called Paxos. When I first met Sheila, though, she was running the FDIC. Uh, I was a reporter who covered the Treasury Department and sort of ended up covering the financial crisis. It was during some of the scariest days of the financial crisis. And I actually started our interview by asking her about that time. When I first got to know of you, I knew you as the FDIC chair, and it was the beginning of the financial crisis. Uh, I saw a lot of you. I, I sat on the floor outside of meetings that you were in, but you always seemed to come with a sense of what do all these big policy conversations mean for people at the end of the chain who maybe don't understand what's going on? And you write kids' books. How would you describe what you do to... To a kid, like in the plainest of language. Yeah. <laughs> well, so I think 
I explain to children that I really, throughout my career, I've, I've tried to find jobs where I can help people protect their money, grow their money safely, manage their money well. So that that's something I, I derive a lot of satisfaction from. It's an area where I think I have made a contribution and continue to make one. I wonder how you would describe what's wrong with money and how we think about it right now. Well, I think uh, the immediate problem with money, let's just say traditional money, fiat currency, is that the payment system, the challenge of getting money from point A to point B is heavily intermediated. So there, there are middlemen or women in between. And it's a particularly bad problem if you're trying to transfer money from one jurisdiction to another, an international transfer. Let's define intermediation, I think, for people who don't understand the markets well. Intermediation is just, let's say, you're in Europe, right? Or Canada. <laughs> you're in Canada. I'm in the U.S. <laughs> if I want to wire money to you, I, that's got to go through a couple of different banks. You know, it's got to go through a U.S. bank. And if, if it's a small U.S. bank, it may have to go through another big bank. And then it's got to go through a Canadian bank. And it may have to go through another bank in Canada. So at each step along the way, you've got a bank processing the money I'm trying to get to you and probably charging a fee for it. I do business in Canada. I'm connected with a couple of companies there. Anytime they try to transfer money to me or vice versa, I get these whopping fees, you know, $200 transfers and $30 fee. That's intermediation. <laughs> with a blockchain, I could just transfer it directly to you in Canada and uh, and there would not be any cost. At least that that's, that is the potential for this technology. That's what I mean by intermediation. Banks make tons of money off of payments. The clearinghouses make tons of money off of clearing and settling securities and, and derivatives, futures, options, etc. And they are threatened by this. And that must stick with you given everything that you oversaw when you oh, were at the FDIC. Absolutely. Yes, they were. And this is why one of the reasons, because of this intermediate system, you need these large dominant institutions that have a reach into Europe and Canada and South America, et cetera, that have the capacity to take these you know, millions of payments and process them. So that's one of the reasons you need these very large institutions, but maybe we don't need such large systemic institutions if we can decentralize a lot of this. And again, that, that's what blockchain is all about or should be all about. How did you first get interested in cryptocurrency? I was approached to be on the board of a company called Paxos uh, some, some time ago, and uh, and they had a vision and still do to to try to get a lot of the frictions that I was mentioning earlier out of the system. So not just in terms of intermediating payments, which is really important at the at the at the grassroots level, at the working family level, but also just at a macro system stability level getting all these frictions, this intermediation, centralized intermediation out of the system, I think has huge benefits. So that was really uh, when I was first exposed to blockchain and the promise of blockchain. And I'm still very bullish on blockchain technology, not so much on some of the assets that are traded on blockchains, right? Don't know Bitcoin, don't know Dogecoin, tell people stay away from it. You know, there's a lot of silly stuff out there that people are making a lot of money on for now, losing money on too. I stay away from that because I, I don't understand what the real value is behind those assets. But I do believe in the technology a lot and, and think uh, the best is yet to come in terms of deploying those technologies to help people at the, at the family, at the household level. You are articulating a need for faster payments, uh, sort of ease of financial transaction without a lot of clogging up the wheels, for lack of a better term, right. for right. regular people. But then at the right. same time, I think that cryptocurrency is often thought of as not 
for regular people, that these are assets with huge value swings and, you know, held by sophisticated investors or people really willing to take a risk. So how how do you kind of occupy the, the middle between those things? Right. So I think you need to separate the technology. The, the blockchain is, is a platform for making transfers or recording ownership uh, with, with assets that, that trade on those platforms. So the assets, you know, I'm very troubled by. I don't own any of it. It's too volatile for me. I don't want to risk losing my money like that. I like safe investments. I do think companies that are developing blockchain for real use cases, payments, clearing and settlement, I think those are those are good investments to make, but those are uses of blockchain with with tangible real value, unlike just, you know, some fancy cleverly marketed new coin or token that people are buying just because it's a fad. I mean, they're buying just because they think the price will keep going up. I mean, it's, it's classic speculation. What is it about blockchain, again, in the how you'd explain it to a child model, right, that right, you find right. so compelling? Well, first of all, it, it's it's distributed, right? So in in, it, in its ideal use, you're not going to have intermediation fees. You're not going to be paying fees to banks and other intermediaries. It's also pseudonymous. So it's it's not completely anonymous. So everybody can see the transactions. You, you don't necessarily know who the person is behind the transaction, but you can see the transaction. So, and, and actually, a lot of people, including me, were saying this is a net positive. Regulators didn't like the pseudonymity of it. But I think law enforcement is finding now that it's much, e- certainly much easier than cash to actually track hmm. where you know, value is going along the blockchain. So that, that's important. And it underscores one of the more exciting use cases. I'm curious how that would work in practice. I mean, an example I can think of is, right, the the payments, the $300 payments that people with children in the U.S. have been receiving or were receiving during the pandemic. How would you do that, for example, as a as a piece of blockchain technology, if the Fed or, or Treasury were to issue a digital currency? Well, if, if it was done directly uh, by the Fed, I think it's more likely to be done through the U.S. Treasury. So presumably everybody would have, you know, you would have a digital wallet that you would register with the U.S. Treasury. And, and then the, the currency could be transferred directly into the digital wallet. And there would be, verific- obviously, there would be, you know, due diligence on the front end, verification on the front end, that that is your digital wallet. But again, these can be safer, I think, than the traditional bank accounts, certainly safer than a, a paper check or sending out a debit card. And so that that is one way. When you envision something like this, do you envision a stable coin where the the value of the digital currency is tied to an underlying asset like fiat currency? Oh, absolutely. I don't, I don't, <laughs> I don't want to be giving people Bitcoin. <laughs> no, <laughs> you know, it's just going to be a, a central bank, a Fed issued version of, of dollars. That's what it should look like. It should be dollar for dollar backed in, in a real cash equivalent that can be readily redeemed when people want it, when they want to cash in their stable coin and get a a fiat dollar back. Yeah, there have been a lot of kind of mutterings about crypto regulation. And one thing I feel like has probably come to the fore is the idea of going after stable coins first. I mean, could you see a a regulatory framework where the regulation said, okay, you've got to take your customer assets and put them in something cash-like, that they have to be in treasuries or they have to be in, you know, in something that it, that is not wildly fluctuating commercial debt. 
So I would love for that. I mean, I, I was very disappointed when the president's working group report came out and basically said stable coins should be, should be in banks. But to move this trillion-dollar stablecoin market and force it all into banks, you're basically having the FDIC back the industry at that point. Hmm. So I think if you're going to put it, well, you are. I mean, because the FDIC is the way, reason why banks can can assure people that their you know their 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 bank deposit has stable value. So if you're going to um, if you're going to go the route of having it in a bank, then I would also have okay, even if it's in a bank, the, it you know it has to be backed by cash equivalent reserves. Invested all in short-term treasuries, for instance, but that's what you have to do, because otherwise, I, I don't think you've made the system safer. You've protected banks from competition. That by itself doesn't solve the problem. You need to make sure if it's in banks that it needs to be uh, backed with reserves that are in short-term treasuries. Well, I think sort of circling back to this idea of the future of money, it feels to me like you have two big different worldviews in the the umbrella crypto community. One is that the technology, the blockchain, this is what counts. This is the future. And the other is a worldview that decentralized finance, doing things outside the government, outside the big banks, you know, away from the bad actors of 2008 as they see them is the way to go. Yeah. Do you encounter pushback from that from that latter community that doesn't want regulation yeah. or, you know, this stuff flowing through the big financial institutions saying, hey, crypto's our thing. You know, back off, bank lady. Right, right. <laughs> so I'm they want to disrupt like I'm all for it. You want to di- disrupt the big banks, you want to disrupt these big clearinghouses. I'm all for it. Let me, (laughs) where do I sign up? I'm happy to help you. That's not the issue. That's not the issue. The problem is don't use the virtuous uses of this technology as an excuse to turn a blind eye to fraud, to manipulation, to money laundering. It's out there. These these crypto assets are being used for that purpose. And the responsible players, the ones who really want credibility and acceptance of this technology, they need to work with government and work with regulators to crack down on it. So it's not that this is not, you know, there's a difference between free markets and free for all markets, <laughs> as, as a, we used to say at the New York Stock Exchange, and it is true. So we've got free for all markets right now in crypto. I have a, a toddler, right? I have a 21-month-old son, and I wonder when he is 18, what you think he's going to be doing with his money? Like, what is that financial world going to look yeah, like? Yeah, like, I would not be surprised if, if security bonds, yeah, stocks and bonds are traded on a blockchain by the time he's 18. Yep, 16 years. Yep, yep. I would not be surprised. I would not be surprised if, uh, or, or something, a distributed ledger or something similar built on blockchain technology. I would not be surprised. I, I, I hope this is, this, this technology is, is utilized in a good way, not a bad way. I hope by the time he's 18, We've gotten back to a system where people know the, the wisdom of investing for the long term to build wealth, but also seek out companies that are actually producing something that they understand is, is providing a benefit. Sheila Bear, thank you so much for your time. Oh, yeah, my pleasure. It was fun, Lizzie. Nice seeing you again. That was a fascinating discussion with Sheila. And we're going to welcome Vicky Huff Ecker back into the conversation. Vicky, what stands out for you from, from that discussion? 
Yeah, I think that was a great discussion. And to me, to hear Sheila talk about the importance of regulation and in a very um, productive and positive fashion, this is uh, something that I think we all need to work together on. And at the same time, her comments on it's going to take time to get laws. And she's right. It's um, This is something that's going to evolve, but it will take some time, as she pointed out. And Vicky, I think that's such an important point, isn't it? Because I think what this show has really illuminated is that we definitely need regulation, but we need the right regulation. We need to sort of get onto this soon, but we don't want to go too quickly in terms of boxing ourselves in. Yeah, that's right. You got it. And I think that when you look at this timing, on one hand, you want to take the time to be thoughtful and lay out regulations that you're not going to regret in 20 or 30 years and or could have significant harm to economies. And then on the other hand, you have what Sheila mentioned, which is um, the potential disintermediation of the banking systems. And so there, you know, to the extent the markets, the crypto markets continue to grow, that becomes a much bigger risk and that will require regulators to move much faster than they currently are. So let's pull apart disintermediation a little bit and explain why that was such an important point for you to focus on. Yeah, disintermediation is really important to me because it is a systemic risk from a standpoint of banking. If you look at what is happening and the trends that are happening around blockchain, Web3, the crypto markets, right? Uh, Gen Z, the kids, are increasingly using it uh, as a form of currency. Therefore, it's bypassing cash as bypassing credit cards, which are a significant revenue generating item from a banking standpoint. So it's one end of disintermediation. The other side of it is to the extent that you have high net worth individuals starting to move assets into crypto markets from an investment standpoint, the return on those assets and the investment of those assets are no longer available to the banks. So as you look at those two ends, as just an example, to the extent they accelerate and grow, you will have risks that are going to be built in where the banks are being bypassed. Do you worry at all that without intermediaries in the sort of crypto ecosystem, there are going to be people left holding the bag waiting for their digital currency that simply cannot arrive? So it's hard because you... Um, you have an elimination of intermediaries, which should accelerate the markets and keep that risk from happening. Having said that, you know, and, and so one thing that's important is the foundation, the principles of how blockchain networks were built were to exclude and disintermediate and remove those middlemen and women. At the same time, what I also see is a whole new set of middlemen and middlewomen being created in these crypto markets. Hmm. And, you know, those over time will be regulated. And I think the traditional markets and the crypto markets will come together. But, you know, that will be, you know, the next three, five, seven years. The early movers have been, you know, innovators. But right now, the big banks are looking at cryptocurrencies and blockchain technologies and saying, oh, wait a minute, we we want in on this new thing. Yeah, that's right. I mean, and you know, even the regulators, they don't want it, but they see the tax opportunity. Everybody wants in and everybody doesn't want it all at the same time. But Lizzie, on who's going to be it, we always joke around of has Amazon been born yet? 
right? Hmm. And um, it's a jump ball. And I think that there's a common belief right now that in this market, Amazon probably hasn't been born yet or is in the early, early stages in a garage somewhere. But there's a lot more coming and it's still pretty early. So I would say jump ball. I don't even say jump ball. It's nobody knows yet. So listening to all of this and thinking kind of where we started, this concept of the future of money, I wonder, Vicky, where you would put the that time horizon for the future. Are we talking about a world that is happening imminently or when my toddler is an adult? Where's the line? Yeah, great question, Lizzie. So I like to talk about the roaring tech 20s because I do think it's this decade. Um, and I think it will continue to evolve so that when your toddler is a teenager, this is the world will have been developed in front of them. Um, will we be at a point then where stock markets have been digitized and others? I think that's going to take time. But, um, but I do think that this digital currency trend is going to evolve over the next three, five, seven years, not five, 10, 15. And um, so I think it is, that is why I actually am encouraging industry leaders to spend time and educate themselves on it. Because um, it will it will grow with Gen Z, right? And they're graduating college, and here they come. And I think that's the way to think about it. Vicki Huff-Eckert, thank you so much for lending your insights to us today. Thank you both. It was a pleasure to be here with you. And Lizzie, having interviewed Sheila, and now that your toddler's going to become like a Bitcoin expert, we've established I know, we podcast. keep referring to him. <laughs> It's going to be like this sort of new guru of crypto. And what have your takeaways been from this show? That this is happening faster than I thought. I think even though I am someone who has covered money and technology, I admittedly have have pushed some of this off into the world of experts. But it's a moment of reckoning that is that is closer than I imagined. I would completely concur with that. I think my the big teachable lesson that I'm taking away from this show is that this shift is not academic. It's not some kind of, you know, weird niche subject that kind of weird people on the internet are talking about. It, it is real and it's coming and we have all got to get educated. The public has to get educated. Young people have to get educated business, of course, have to get educated, politicians, policymakers and regulators. I mean, I think this is so interesting to think, as Vicky was sort of saying, you know, how to get the right blend of regulation, which is not too prescriptive right now, but which is flexible, agile, will need to move with with the times. It is going to be fascinating to see how all of this pans out. That's it for this episode. Join us next week when we'll be asking, can more robust corporate reporting deliver meaningful change? Everybody understands a balance sheet, profit and loss. It's all organized in the same way. Financial reporting as a basis for decision making really, really works these days. That's the place we need to get to with sustainability information as well. Take On Tomorrow is brought to you by PwC Strategy and Business. PwC refers to the PwC network and or one or more of its member firms, each of which is a separate legal entity. 